Well, good morning, and welcome to the Federal Society Conference on the all-important book, The Antitrust Paradox. I want to thank you all for coming. I'm Dean Reuter, Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. I can say seldom, I think, has a, a discussion of a book that's more than 40 years old and its central thesis been more timely now that we are faced with what might be described as an ascendant notion of big is bad, challenges in technology and antitrust, and on and on. I want to thank Bob Bork, Jr., not only for being here today with us, but for his efforts in republishing the antitrust paradox, now available online everywhere. At a very reasonable cost, I'll add, as compared to the eight or $900 you could have spent for it six or seven months ago. And uh, you know that runs against my own self-interest as I have several copies of the old edition, which I guess now have gone down in value. I haven't looked. Uh, the day's events are described in your program uh, at the registration table, but uh, just to recap or uh, precede, um, predict, we begin here in the stateroom with a fireside chat, followed by a panel discussion on the history of the antitrust paradox and the consumer welfare standard. And then we'll move to the East Room for lunch only and then return here for our second panel, Where Do We Go From Here?, and a closing address by Senator Mike Lee, who wrote the introduction for the new volume and a book signing. The fireside chat, of course, is going to be led by Judge Douglas Ginsburg and feature Bob Bork. They're so well known to everyone in the room that I'm going to introduce them only very briefly. Uh, and I'll say only that Judge Ginsburg is a, a, the long-serving now senior judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, but so much more than that, a friend of the Federalist Society, a scholar, and a student of the law generally, and antitrust in particular. Bob Bork Jr. is his father's son. He's worked diligently to bring this book into print. He's absorbed so much of its knowledge, and he's now become its happy promoter. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Dean. Doug? Bob, uh, before we talk about republishing yeah. the antitrust paradox, um, I think it'd be useful for everyone to know a little bit about the first publication of the book, how it came about, the timing, and so on. So could you give us that background? Well, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, my father started thinking about antitrust when he was a student at Chicago and was a student of uh, Aaron Director. Class of 53, I believe. Yeah, 53. And uh, uh, went on to practice in antitrust uh, at uh, Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago. I, I believe he decided to become an academic after spending seven years on the uh, True Temper um, uh, golf shaft case. He said that was too long for any one person to spend on anything uh, like that. So he uh, uh, was recruited by one of the, his lecturers at Chicago, uh, Ward Bowman, who is now then at, uh, at, at Yale. Um, teaching at the law school, the uh, only economist on the, on the law school uh, faculty. Uh, so he started writing, thinking about uh, the economics uh, and, and the, the law and economics of antitrust there, uh, started really working on, deciding to work on a book after a series of articles. I think one of the first was uh, Columbia uh, Law Review on, uh, on the goals of antitrust. Uh, from, from there, he started working on a draft. Uh, I remember, actually, as a young boy, uh, 
at 61 Huntington Street in New Haven. He was up in the attic uh, with uh, uh, working on a desk, uh, cramped uh, under the eaves office, working on a desk made from a door that my mother made uh, with his uh, mechanical scripto pencils and uh, yellow pads and room full of cigarette smoke, uh, working on things and teaching himself uh, calculus so that he could do the economics necessary to flesh out his, his thoughts. Uh, he, um, uh, at, I was up there helping him uh, in, uh, grade uh, law school exams on the blue books. And by that, I mean I wasn't reading them and, uh, and offering scores. He would write the scores on the front of each blue book, and I would add them up. I learned how to do my decimals that, that way. <laughs> and some people probably would have done better in law school if, they had, if I hadn't done that. But um, so he... Uh, uh, he, he, you know, he, he thought that it was important that, uh, that he understand the economics, and so, and so he, uh, and, and, and so he taught himself calculus, as I said, and and started working on the book, and had really had a draft. Um, well, we went to England on sabbatical, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, and he worked on it there. Uh, so, actually, just to jump ahead for a second, when we started putting this edition together, we found English spellings because I think he had someone typing up his, his mm -hmm. notes, his mm -hmm. manuscript. And so somehow or another, we managed, they managed to miss the English spellings of words, and we've now corrected that to the proper American English. Um, but he, he spent uh, the, that time there working on the book. And then uh, two things happened. Uh, one, uh, uh, my mother became very ill, and uh, he stopped working on it. And uh, two, uh, he was back at Yale, and Yale was rife with dissent, and people were burning books at the law library at the at Yale Law School. And uh, there's a famous picture of him on the New York Times front page, sort of standing and looking at a pile of smoldering books on, on the street uh, in front of the law school. Um, and, and then he got nominated by Richard Nixon to be Solicitor General and felt that he really could not uh, published this book when he was going to be the third ranking, second, third ranking uh, officer of the Justice Department, uh, and people in the antitrust division would somehow feel intimidated or something uh, by uh, having him and his book be out there. Well, so, indeed, he might have had to uh, defend certain cases in the Supreme Court that he thought were wrong, mm -hmm. because the, 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 the department had not yet turned around. Right. That's, that's even a better point. So uh, he went off, had his time at justice, which, as you know, was uh, turbulent. And um, when he came back, he finished the book uh, and it got it published in 1978. The remarkable thing to me about the next step in the story is that here it is published in 1978. And in 1979, writer against Sonatone, right. the Supreme Court says in the decision, the uh, Sherman Act is a consumer welfare statute. Footnote, work the antitrust paradox. A year later. A year later. An extraordinary uh, event. I mean, ordinarily, the ideas in a, in a significantly revolutionary book take a while to penetrate. And this was adopted by, I think, a very eager Supreme Court. 
Clearly, anxious to have some kind of, of rudder, some standard by which to, uh, to judge these cases. Well, I think you mentioned in this very room in 2007, when they did a panel on, uh, or a whole day on, on, on my father's uh, contributions, uh, that uh, there was another case before that, that where the Supreme Court uh, implicitly adopted uh, some of the thinking, not for, from an article. It may have been that same Columbia article with Ward Bowman, I forget. Are uh, you thinking of? Um, uh, the ninth, it was a Ninth Circuit Sylvania? case. Sylvania? Yeah. Yeah, GT Sylvania. Right. So there, the, it was kind of teed up a little bit, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but the book gave the court uh, exactly what it needed, a rationale for thinking about antitrust that it didn't have before. But I think Sylvania was 77. So it had to have been based on an article rather than... Yeah, it was right. It was an article, yeah. I think, you, yeah. you mentioned. You, actually, I think you mentioned in the 1967 article that, that 10 years later was influential yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, so here is all of a sudden he sees his book adopted as, as uh, authoritative uh, in a way that uh, I'm not sure whether it's clear how significant the, the implications of that would be uh, when the court first did it. But... Uh, one case after another seemed to have uh, to prove that that was exactly what the court wanted to do. I think it's been cited in something like 150 cases now. Not all Supreme Court cases, obviously. Well, the court proceeded just in the line of cases, uh, starting with Sylvania, GTE Sylvania, started systematically overruling all of its vertical restraint cases. It took 40 years to get to... Uh, to uh, 2007, uh, with Legion, the mm -hmm. last one to fall. But I think there were five in the series when they just repudiated their own, their own prior cases uh, based on, on uh, these insights. We should, get a, we should have trophies, you know, for... So notwithstanding that um, extraordinary reception at the Supreme Court and sustained application of it, um, the book goes out of print, and uh, what else happens? Well, in 1993, there was a second edition in, oh, right. pa in paperback. Yeah. Um, and there was some discussion in the, uh, my father wrote a, a, a new forward or afterward, I forget which, uh, you know, sort of commenting on what had happened since and feeling, I think, pretty good about where things were going. Uh, so a couple of years ago, actually about three, four years ago, I began hearing uh, rumblings from people like Elizabeth Warren and others about uh, redoing the antitrust laws, and we have to use antitrust law to impose, uh, to break up uh, companies uh, that are too big. And I thought, well, I wonder, can you still get the book? I hadn't looked. And I went on the line, and you, yeah, Dean said it was true. You, you could buy old copies of the book for several hundred dollars, but there were the, the, the 93 version was out of print. They, in paperback, it, they were still expensive. Uh, so I called the publisher, and they wouldn't talk to me. Um, they, uh, I had to hire an agent to talk to the publisher. Uh, <laughs> and I had to hire a lawyer. So um, ultimately, uh, we were able to convince them that, that they should uh, uh, give up the rights of the book uh, to the Bork family. And then I started looking for a publisher. Uh, and uh, The original uh, publisher didn't want to bring out the new no, edition? No, I won't name names. But, uh, well, the original publisher had been, the original, original publisher had been 
many times oversold, and you know, uh, and I think the current publisher was, was now the parent of that and many other imprints. Um, so we started looking around, and there was some interest, but uh, I guess the way of the publishing world is we have to have a lot of meetings. We have to have meetings to discuss whether we should have another meeting and another meeting. And uh, somebody, one of the, the last publisher I spoke to said it would take about four years to get the book out. And, uh, and they didn't have any, they didn't really didn't have the marketing depth to handle it. I said, well, he's a household name, you know, uh, it's not like he's unknown, and it's already been published before and did very well, and it's been very influential, so it shouldn't be a problem. And they said, well, it'll take about four years. So um, I decided to start a publishing company, and, and now I'm a publisher. Uh, <laughs> I feel like Orson Welles. Um, well, your father would be very glad. <laughs> Uh, and so we published it, and uh, took a lot of work actually to clean it up. There were, as I say, besides the, we, we went through every citation, made sure they were all up to date, they're all correct. Uh, I had uh, John Shu, a good friend of the Federal Society and of mine, uh, sort of onshowed the, as a kind of a managing editor. Uh, Dean Reuter, who uh, I cannot go without saying how important he was to making this happen because he kept prodding me and to, to get it done and, and, and providing help. And at the very end, uh, I hope some of these guys are watching, uh, there were uh, 12 Harvard Law students who were recruited to do the final read-through, make sure everything was fine. Uh, and and they had, we gave them one, one week to do it. <laughs> um, and they were all taking exams, I think, at the same time. So. They, they, they deserve a lot of uh, credit for that, uh, and, and as does Dean. So we got it done, uh, and uh, I have a publisher, Ingram Spark, or a printer, and they print them on demand, and Amazon and Barnes & Noble have them now in hardback, paperback, and ebook version. Mm. And mm. we may come out with a uh, large type version at some point down the road. Well, that's great. Um. Yeah, well, Gene, of course, is a good source of advice because he had brought out his own book, yes. Hidden Nazi, but a good book just we to, should hold just that one up at the right time. Right. Um, so, um, uh, by the time you were, um, well, let me first. I want to ask you about the revisions. Is it is it indicated by by the font or in some other way? What is new material? Like um, updating. It's indicated site? by. Uh, well, the new material is, is, is kind of limited. I mean, it's important. We have a new introduction by Senator Mike Lee uh, and uh, a forward by me. Uh, and then everything, and there's a, some new acknowledgments. But everything else is the original book. And uh, the original two editions, we have included things that were new in the 93 edition in this edition, the, his uh, uh, epilogue and, and that sort of thing, and his uh, acknowledgments. And, <clears throat> That's great. So, so um, by the time the book had gone out of print, the influence had, of course, gone well beyond the Supreme Court's cases because starting in 1981, the Antitrust Division and the FTC uh, basically adopted the same principles. Um, Bill Baxter, 1981, not, not long after being confirmed, says, big is not bad. Bad is bad, which would seem to be you know, fairly anodyne, but in fact was a major shift in policy. Um, and Baxter was, of course, schooled deeply in the, in the, in the book. Um, so 
Would you say, in view of the, the long passage of time, that the, um, that the lessons have become frayed in the courts or in the, in the uh, enforcement agencies? Well, they are now. Uh, what are you seeing? Well, the FTC, I think, is about to uh, change its uh, guidelines on vertical mergers. Uh, They've rescinded the previous rescinding the previous memo. guidelines, yeah. right. Rescinding the previous guidance. Um, not sure what justice is doing at this point, but uh, everybody should read a speech by the Associate Attorney General on antitrust that was uh, given yesterday, I think, or the day before. Uh, and uh, they now view antitrust at the Justice Department, and I think in Congress to a great degree, and also uh, at, at the FTC, as being about something more than uh, maximizing consumer welfare uh, and, uh, and efficiency. It's about economic justice, uh, broadly writ, and uh, she goes on for some pages about what uh, she thinks we ought to be doing with antitrust, but basically forcing companies to uh, adopt uh, woke policies. Uh, so there's, uh, antitrust is under assault now. It's, uh, they're trying to weaponize it for more control and more regulation of, of business and the economy. And as I've said uh, in many interviews, I'm very concerned that they're trying to basically fossilize capitalism. Well, suppose the department brings a case that's based on some consideration in addition to or other than consumer welfare. Uh, economic justice is the one you mentioned. Um, how, how will that fare in the courts, do you think? Well, I think that I, I would ask you, but maybe you can't say. But um, well, I don't know, but I thought you might know. <laughs> my, my, my only hope uh, for the longevity, continued longevity of consumer, welfare, of consumer welfare standard uh, is the courts, because they have a long history, a long jurisprudence now uh, of uh, deciding cases based on, on the consumer welfare standard. Uh, if uh, that gets rewritten by statute, uh, then they, all bets are off, I think. So. Well, yes, if the statute changes, of course, the courts will follow the statute. Right. But you were implying at least that the department currently could, quite apart from any legislative change, bring a case based on something else. They could. And the question is, well, how will the courts treat it? And I'm hopeful that the courts will uphold the standard that has been in place for the last 40 some odd years. Well, in which case legislation would be the moving right. vehicle uh, that's, for, for that's, changing That's it. the risk to the current system, the current regime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, understood. Um, okay, so um, there is not a confirmed person with the antitrust division. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission, is, I think they have a, a va one vacancy, but in any event. One, someone's been announced now. Oh, has, okay, yeah. but they have, oh that's right, just yesterday, mm -hmm. two days ago, a uh, professor from Georgetown. Uh, but they have new leadership even now. Mm -hmm. um, so apart from rescinding the, uh, the vertical guidelines, um, what do you see coming out of the FTC? Uh, nothing good. <laughs> uh, well, what I've, what I've seen and read so far is that uh, the, the move is underway to uh, give uh, the chairman, chairperson, uh, a uh, sort of 
unfettered control over everything. The, as I understand it, the uh, uh, chief administrative law judge has basically had uh, their uh, powers uh, subsumed by the commission itself. Uh, they can, over, I think, easily just take over cases. If I'm misstating that, uh, I apologize, but that's my, what I read. I understand that uh, Lena Khan uh, ordered uh, the staff of the FTC not to speak publicly anymore, not to go to conferences, at one point not to teach classes. Um, I think that was one of the great benefits for so the staff of being at the FTC was to go out and talk about antitrust and consumer, uh, consumer things. And uh, my, I'm told by people on the inside that that, that, that has created a lot of uh, uh, anger and that people are going to quit, people are quitting, and that's in order to allow her to uh, fill the ranks with loyalists, uh, people who agree with her. Uh, attempt to push people out. Um, so, and then of course now they're talking about uh, re rescinding the vertical uh, guidelines, and uh, I think there was even a memo on the consumer welfare standard that got rescinded as well, or at least they're discussing that. I haven't seen that, but uh, take your word for it. Um, the commission, the FTC, of course. Um, enters many, into many more uh, settlements than it does litigation. Right. Um, and if, even, uh, let's say, in the, during the Obama administration, there were several settlements that, um, with respect to, uh, to the enforcement of uh, standard essential patents, uh, for instance, uh, that in which companies agreed to things that they could not have been forced to do in court. But of course, those settlements don't constitute precedents either. Right. Um, so I would think that, um, that if there's a change in the wind at the FTC, it would be expressed first in, in settlements where the agency has great leverage. Um, the uh, respondents have a great incentive to settle things and move on, uh, particularly in merger cases, but also in consumer protection cases. Um, and the, that one would see the agency's position evolving primarily by reading settlements, uh, seeing settlements. But they're also apparently telling uh, companies that the settlements, they may come back and revisit some of those settlements. Um, but they're, they, you know, for example, uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, they're, they're after Facebook for its uh, purchase of WhatsApp and Instagram, you know, the things that they agreed to. And now they're saying, well, maybe not. Right, but the complaint there doesn't rest entirely on revisiting those acquisitions. It's couched, I believe, in terms of the acquisitions having then enabled the company to do things that were anti-competitive. So this post-acquisition conduct mm -hmm. is, is, I think, the, the more promising part of the case well, and, for the commission. And, and, and separately, of course, they've announced now that the 30-day that they, that they if, if you apply for a merger, I guess, and then if you, uh, 30 days goes by, they're not, they're not going to adhere to the 30-day deadline anymore. Right. I think the chairman has said, uh, Chair Khan has said that uh, the volume of, of applications, of, of filings under Hart Scott Rodino mm -hmm. is just such that they cannot be dealt with in a timely fashion. 
given the current staffing level uh, at the commission. Right. Um, and um, I think she's correct that this is an unprecedented level of, of transactions. I guess people are trying to get in under before bad things happen, but uh, <laughs> well, before the rules get changed too much. If that's the case, then good reason to say, you know, don't count on it. <laughs> right. So uh, what other than consumer welfare do you think, you mentioned economic justice, whatever that may mean, what other things are you worried about getting attached either legislatively or through enforcement decisions? Well, I'm just worried broadly, and I think my father would be too, to returning to a time when there is no, as you put it, rudder. There is no standard. Um, you know, back in the uh, days of big is bad and, uh, and uh, small, uh, small actors and worthy men, I mean, just the, 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 the neo-Brandesians, as they refer to themselves, and, and this new uh, stuff that's brewing on Capitol Hill, basically, I mean, anything goes. I mean, I don't know that any company will have any idea what it's allowed to do. And we'll have to come looking for guidance all the time. And then may just walk into a buzzsaw if they have a merger or an acquisition or... Uh, well, I, I think the merger standard before, uh, before the change of heart that came with the book was, uh, was identified by, I think it was Justice Stewart in a separate opinion, right? Mm -hmm. The only consistency is that the government wins. Right. Uh, now... Uh, and that seemed to have been the case, in fact, because mergers, here, here's the problem, Bob. There are merger cases on the books the, from the Supreme Court. The most recent one is 1974, and it's, I think it was Grinnell, in any event, it was 1974. It was not a terrible decision. All the previous ones are still there, Vons Groceries and Paps Brewing and all that sort of stuff. And um, the court has not had a substantive Section 7 case, or resolved it on substantive grounds anyway, since 1974. So all those old precedents are there. Brown Shoe is another one. When I was Assistant Attorney General, um, I simply would not allow the staff to cite those cases. You know, they, yes, they said, well, we could win. Well, if we don't want to win on that ground, all right, if we can't have a legitimate or well-thought-out objection. But those are the precedents, they're still there. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any barrier to the division or the FTC relying on them. They're totally out of step with contemporary uh, uh, industrial organization economics. Uh, but, but that's not the law. So um, maybe the consumer welfare standard isn't so well lodged. Maybe it's not. <laughs> It certainly seems to be precariously perched at the moment. Yeah, well, particularly with regard to mergers in that, in that respect. Um, what, besides it being harmful to consumers, what's wrong with departing from the consumer welfare standard? Uh, and adopting whatever it is. Let's say a concern for, um, for labor monopsony. A merger might result in uh, the merged firm having a monopsony position in its in its local labor market. Well, let me ask you that because I'm not sure I, I'm able to answer that specifically. I would say, but I would say that if if we start with a uh, 
consumer welfare standard, yes, uh, there are other things which may be of concern. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, looking at price fixing and that sort of thing uh, that harm consumer welfare. You know, I guess our workers consumers is a, is a question. Are they consumers in the sense of the consumer welfare standard? Uh, but I would, I would like to ask you, since you're far more expert on antitrust uh, history and law. Well, I'm somewhat uh, sterilized. Yes, I know. But there are a lot of different criteria that have been proposed. Mm -hmm. um, taking account of labor markets and beyond that, the effect on employment as a concern, right? Just the merger resulting in redundancies and layoffs, uh, which are harmful to individuals, um, is one thing that's been suggested. Um, the environmental consequences of a transaction or of a practice, if it's a, a unilateral case. Um, I mean, those are all things that are um, of concern as expressed in other policies of the government. Right. Other policies of the government. And there are laws on the books to deal with. I'm I, sorry, there I assume there are laws on the books yeah. to deal with labor issues and uh, environmental issues. And right. Other, you know, I, but are all the, is everything that happens uh, in a merger an antitrust issue? Or is it, uh, you know, we have environmental uh, reviews of, uh, you know, pipelines and uh, other things. And, uh, so do we, do we have to, uh, I, I guess, going back to your earlier question, the thing that I, I worry about, and again, I should, for those of you who don't know, I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on Zoom. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I uh, claim uh, my law degree uh, as a uh, participation trophy at the dinner table growing up. But that's, that's about <laughs> it. Um, <clears throat> so some of Doug's questions... I'm thinking back to my law school days, and I didn't, didn't have them. Uh, but, uh, but I did read the book. So um, uh, I, am, you know, I am concerned that uh, we stray too far in, in taking antitrust to be the solution to everything. You know, every problem that, that is perceived by policymakers, um, well, it's an antitrust problem. We can use antitrust. Uh, whether it's breaking up big tech companies or breaking up big ag companies or because we don't, you know, we don't like what they're doing, uh, is it really an antitrust problem? Or is it some other, other, other issues that we need to address? Uh, right laws directed at, those, at the particular problems that, that concern us and not just simply think, well, we have the bludgeon of antitrust to use to force changes in behavior uh, and changes in, in, you know, in, in company structure. You mentioned, um, you made a reference to Brandeis, and I presume the neo-Brandeisian view now in, somewhat in vogue, um, and to big being bad, or maybe I introduced that to the discussion. But um, I'm not sure that there's a single all-encompassing theory or, or objection that um, is being presented as the alternative to the consumer welfare standard. 
The consumer Western standard is a theory of everything, right? It, right. It, it says uh, all these problems, all these issues, can be addressed with this in mind and in a fairly rigorous way. Not that it will be so clear in every case that there's no room for litigation. Obviously, that will happen. Disagreements about it, um, but the disagreements will be will be narrow and disciplined, mm -hmm. based on on the economic model. Um, I think the principal motivation, I, I may be wrong about this, I think the principal motivation uniting the opposition to the consumer welfare standard, at least in large part with regard to scale, is that big companies that may be very efficient and may be serving consumers well, um, obtain a, a political influence that is um, uh, untoward uh, for the for democracy or democratic republic, and I'm not sure that there's an answer in the consumer welfare standard to that objection. It's an empirical question as to whether it's true, but assuming it's true. Right. Well, again, assuming it's true, um, you know, I think Dad talks in the book about uh, speaking of democracy, that the consumer welfare standard is uh, first of all uh, a neutral principle. It's not Republican or Democrat, uh, conservative or liberal. And he says it's, it's a democratic small d uh, principle. It's uh, based on the idea that, uh, to some extent, that consumers decide what they want and what they like. And if it benefits them, they will reward the, the company that is, uh, or companies that are making or offering a service. And if they don't, they won't. Uh, they'll vote with their feet and their dollars. Um, so to a certain extent, I think that that small d democracy uh, should trump at least some of the uh, democratic objection to what companies do and how they, uh, and, and their, and now, you know, and, and getting to the question of uh, size and uh, 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 accumulation of power, um, I, I think, a lot of, from what I've read, a lot of the criticism doesn't really understand the modern marketplace for things like uh, the internet. You know what? What that the the, uh, the uh, uh, economies of scale and the, that sort of thing that that the internet provides. And just think, you know, the the bigger some of these companies are, the better the consumer is served by them. Now, there are questions of privacy and the use of the information that the consumers offer up. And one can ask whether or not all of that is always uh, understood by the consumer. Um, but again, I'm not sure that that requires, you know, in, in if, if you break up some of these companies, particularly the big tech ones, what are you going to get? You're going to get services that either go away or are going to start to cost people having to pay for them. They're not paying for them now. Uh, and Mark Zuckerberg will get very much richer. In the sense of John D. Rockefeller got pretty think, much richer. I think it's a very important question as to what would likely happen. Right. Uh, one interesting possibility is that um, assuming, and I think correctly, but let's assume that the, what the companies are doing is trying to satisfy consumers in order to profit from doing so. Mm -hmm. um, so take the objection that, well, in order to, in order to please consumers, 
They have algorithms that send them news and information of the sort that they will find pleasing. Right? So you get this dichotomy of what people are seeing and reading and so contribution to polarization of, pol of political view. Um, so let's say the company that's doing that uh, is broken up into several uh, separate, uh, separate competitors. Well, they're going to compete even harder to give consumers what they want. And even more, <laughs> try to, to send them the news that they value, that they want right. to see. Why would they not? If they're trying to please consumers, the current companies are doing that. Presumably they are. So would their successors. Right. And, 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 and I think the current uh, uh, critics uh, forget that there are, in fact, competitors out there. First of all, some of these companies compete with each other. Uh, these big oh, ones. Yeah. And then sure. second of all, you know, there are the parlors of the world and others like parlor out there offering different services, different kinds of services with different standards of uh, community standards and all that. There are, I get ads in my feed all the time for uh, apps that will give me uh, news that is unfiltered or you know, isn't biased or whatever, either way. Or, or news that is inclusive of both sides. So there is, in fact, I think, there are places people can go to find an alternative to what they think is uh, uh, they're being managed by the platform. The array of things available is so vast, it dwarfs anything in prior human experience. Right. Now, just because some of those apps aren't as big as Facebook doesn't mean that they won't be. I mean, Facebook killed a competitor years ago in MySpace mm -hmm. and uh, Google beat up Yahoo. So there's no reason to suggest that they couldn't actually also find themselves in a similar boat later on. Um, I want to go back to just something you said about doubting that the, some of the critics of the current standard uh, maybe don't understand the economics. But there may be some who are, didn't have that disability. I was on a panel, I may have been in this room, about three or four years ago, uh, with somebody, I think, from the Open Markets uh, Institute, who understood the economics just as well as you or I, uh, but had these two objections, one of which was uh, political influence, and the other of which was basically nostalgia, um, talking about the effect of Walmart on Main Streets, uh, you know, on the Main Street in smaller cities, and how it's devastated uh, small shops and so on. Um, it's a sort of a cultural objection uh, based on uh, a preference that has nothing to do with the, the economics or with consumer welfare. It's a <coughs> saying that wouldn't it be nice to be a sort of more Jeffersonian society again? Sure, dysentery <laughs> and poop in the streets, right, exactly. Well, it's a, I, I think it's a very elitist <laughs> view, actually. Um, yeah, but well, I, I mean, just, because I mean, Walmart's where it is because people wanted Walmart, to save small amounts of money because they need to. Walmart is where it is because my grandmother, my father's mother, who used to wonder why the corner grocery store was didn't have as much in the way of choices and higher and had higher prices, why that was, and then she said, "Why I go to the supermarket because of that." You know, I go to the big box store because of that. Uh, so yes, she got, she found what she wanted, more choices at lower price, 
from a bigger competitor. Uh, yet she was nostalgic for the corner store. And I guess we're all nostalgic for those kinds of things, but right. I'd, rather, I'd rather pay less and have more choices. It's the, there's an argument that it's sort of a tragedy of the commons, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone would like to have both mm -hmm. low prices and the community uh, vir virtues of, a, of small shops and so on. Um, but uh, you can't have both. No, you can't. <laughs> so the people have chosen, I guess, is one way to look at that, it. And, that's the and, little league democracy we're talking and, about. Yeah, and perhaps uh, some elites would choose otherwise, but so be it. They can go to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, yeah. Um, so are you going to be promoting the book outside of this small circle here? Oh, well, I have. I've done probably close to 50 radio interviews. I've done uh, half a dozen or more webinars with different organizations and uh, uh, flew to Idaho recently to give a presentation at a panel. Uh, and I did one with uh, Senator Lee, uh, or two with him. Uh, and he'll be here later today to, to talk mm -hmm. about the book. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so you have more scheduled? More scheduled. Right. Um, well, I know getting those media tours, you know, where you sit in one place and you do a radio interview and three minutes go by and you do another radio interview. I haven't interview. done that. I sit, in my, I sit in my home office and, yeah. uh, with a little camera on top of my uh, laptop and, uh, and do it that way. Uh -huh. Yeah, we can do it with TV too. Yeah. Right. Um, it's sort of a uh, peculiar role in which to be cast for a short period in one's life. All of a sudden, being on all these uh, media. Uh, well, it's um, we have about eighteen seconds, uh, so I'm going to take that time just to remind everybody that when we break, as we will in twelve seconds, uh, <laughs> there will be a fifteen-minute break, and then we'll reconvene here uh, for the first uh, real panel discussion. Thanks, Doug. There it is. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Appreciate it.